Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on bringing a cocktail to the dinner table, passing by others in a row at a theater, telling a stranger their shirt is inside out, and neighbors letting themselves in unannounced. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining members, our question of the week is about calling people Miss, Ms., Mrs., or Mr. once you're an adult. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript that is the second half of Lizzie's interview with author Emily Ladau. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in snowy Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning, and it is so good to be back with you today. It's really nice to be back on the mic with you, too. But I'll tell you, it was even more fun to kind of kick off yesterday afternoon, uh, headed up to Bridgeside Books to sign books. Thank you for everyone who placed orders. And then you and I bagged off for the afternoon to watch your kids and go sledding together. And it was so much fun, Dan. I was so glad that we did that, and we we enjoyed all that winter has to offer. (laughs) I was so glad, too. I had had a a very sad six-year-old on Sunday when I was out digging our house out from under all this snow (laughs) and very much feeling the pressure of nighttime coming and it's going to freeze and all this snow is going to turn to ice. I've just got to get it off the windows. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And there's Anisha out on the, the front lawn holding her sled saying, it's more fun to sled when there are other people. And sure enough, two days later, Lizzie Post says, you know, I I really just have to get some sledding in. And I said, well, I have to watch the kids this afternoon. We could combine these things. We could. We could. We could. And we did. We did. We did. And it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And also just always great to to be up and visit and get to see the kiddos. I hear them over the phone a lot, but I don't always see them. And so it was it was nice to, to head on up to the mountain for a day. Well, and they change. Give them a couple of months and they, uh, they look a little do. different. They do. <laughs> but no, it was it was really, really fun way to spend the day and, and fun to kind of like cousin connect to. You know, you yeah. and I do a really good job, I feel like, of balancing in our morning call, which usually runs about an hour from 9 to 10, of touching base on, on both life stuff, but also like mostly work stuff. And it's really fun to kind of have, dedicate a longer afternoon to to the life stuff and like hear what we're planning and what trips are people are thinking of doing and, you know, what developmental stages the kids are hitting. You know? Hard to talk budgets and strategic thinking when you're sitting on a giant inflatable unicorn. <laughs> it's very hard to talk about those things on that unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> or being convinced by a six-year-old that, no, 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 the unicorn doesn't hit the trees. Don't worry. You can go right through. <laughs> it's magical. <laughs> it's magical. <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. And it, it is also fun to be back on the mic. I know our yeah. show has continued to air continuously, but we had stacked up some episodes so Chris could have his vacation and. Sunny Florida. Welcome back, Chris. So good to have you back in the wintry north. And that means we get back on a weekly recording schedule, which is kind of an anchor in my week in a lot of ways. It is. So it is. In much the same way that morning call is a real anchor in my day, getting in front of the mic with you always makes me feel like the week is proceeding and we're ready it's for really the following happening. Monday. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, to that, do you think we should get to some questions? I think we should. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just remember, use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. Our first question is titled, Drinks with Dinner. To whom it may concern, I was always taught that one should dispose or finish one's cocktail before being seated at the dinner table for dinner. And that it was bad form to drink a cocktail at the dinner table because there, there was an entirely new set of liquids matched to the courses of food being served. These days, I frequently see people drinking cocktails with their dinner serving and even ordering additional drinks during dinner. Should I change the crowd I'm dining with or get adjusted to the new and changing world? Best, Peter. <laughs> ah, Peter, I appreciate the good humor with which this question is asked. Lizzie Post, I, I'll confess, I'm a little out of my depth here. I definitely really? have heard of the traditional etiquette that you don't bring your pre-dinner cocktail to the table yeah. with you for exactly the reason described in Peter's question. Yeah, I don't usually have a cocktail before dinner. I, I'm I a little out of touch with current practices. Could you <laughs> help me out? I'm really curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. The thing I'm noticing about Peter's email is that it references ordering drinks. And that to me suggests that Peter's talking about dinners out, where I think it might be more common that even if a particular wine is mm -hmm. paired with a particular meal uh, or a, a particular course in the meal – that someone just might feel more free because they're they could be paying for their own way. Like I just I don't know this the particular setups if these are dinners where people are being treated to a prefixed course, uh, you know what I mean, a prefixed menu or if it's or if it's just we're all going out to dinner and we ordered wine for the table, but this person's also ordering a cocktail. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure exactly which situations we're talking about, but regardless, it's happening at a restaurant where I think it's much more common. And, and that's Peter where I would say, eh, that one I'm not going to worry about too, too much. But at someone's home, I don't think Emily Post Etiquette would advise a guest to get up from the dinner table and go fix a drink at the bar and bring it back to the dinner table. That I think when we're being guided by a host and when they've gone through the preparation that they've gone through, I'm not as keen on changing it up. That's where I would let whatever beverage has been selected by the host to be served to be something I either enjoy with the meal or I recognize I don't drink that particular beverage. So, you know, I'm going to pass or, 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 you know, I'm going to pass on it. But yeah, my, my feelings, cuz, are that. Out and about on town and especially in a not hosted but a just friends gathering for dinner situation, totally fine. Here at someone's home where you're being hosted and they've really planned that menu. And it's not like your sister or your best friend who like, you know, you know and you know that that's their favorite thing. So you know they're going to bring that glass to the table. It's like it's funny. Even the home situation, it would depend on the situation whether I would do it or not. My knowledge of the host, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. As I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking to myself, phew, I'm not as out of my depth as I thought at the start of this question. Because I was really thinking I would be following a host's lead. Yeah. And I would really be looking to a host for cues about it. And the more casual the situation, the more comfortable I'd feel really being comfortable and doing what what suited me or what brought me sort of pleasure or enjoyment during the meal – but then I also started to raise a question in my mind of what is formal? Is it a set of rules or is it a feeling around an event or a meal? And it's a little bit of both. It's the interplay between those things. And if I started to get a feeling that the situation was more formal, either from the invitation or the attire or the way the menu's presented or the way the host is interacting with me, the occasion I would definitely start to hew more closely to what I would think of as the traditional guidelines for those situations. And maybe I wouldn't look for a new set of friends, but I would definitely lean more towards the traditional expectation. But I also really liked the way you carved out space for the more casual get-together, the more relaxed get-together. And that, that is a big part of the changing world that we live in. 
Dan, I also don't want this advice to do a thing that I don't love that happens with etiquette advice sometimes. And that's to think, oh, so if it's poor etiquette for my guests to just grab whatever they want to drink and bring it to the table, I as a host should invite them to do that so that they know it's okay. I like that sentiment for when it's that casual moment, it's that closer relationship, it's not the the big production dinner party. Like, I like that idea. What I wouldn't want is for that consideration on a familiar level to all of a sudden become the trending norm, like as if it should happen everywhere. That's something that can happen with etiquette that really drives me nuts. Because we do have different levels of formality, and there are occasions where you wouldn't want to do that. And I think that just making the idea be about the host uh, alleviating this custom or, or, you know, like giving permission against it isn't the only answer. (laughs) Like, it's not the only way to make people feel comfortable here. And I I think it's worth recognizing, especially the the planning and the detail that can really go into the dinner parties that people put together. That's also to say you don't want that to become so precious that your guests are uncomfortable. But it shouldn't be uncomfortable to sit through dinner without a cocktail, I feel like. And so therefore, I feel like that's a reasonable ask. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Lizzie Post, can I tell a post-family story real quick? Yes, you can, of course. (laughs) I, I remember hearing my grandfather offer someone a rammer before dinner at one point yeah yeah and i had no idea what it was so i inquired and it turned out it was a name that they gave uh essentially a shot or a quick cocktail (laughs) that one drank speedily before heading to the dinner table without a drink in your hand (laughs) there's a name for it they called it a rammer and i don't know if that's just almost like last call but not quite like (laughs) it's different i love it But it definitely speaks to the expectation that you wouldn't bring that drink to the table with you. And also to the spirit of if someone would enjoy a quick drink before the table, you might offer it to them. (laughs) Last call on the hard alcohol. Peter, thank you so much for the question. We hope this helps you navigate dining both out with your friends and in people's homes. It's not a simple question, is it? There seem to be many different opinions even among our own gang. Each one of us must make up his own mind. It isn't easy. What do you think? What about drinking? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our next question is about a passing problem. Dear Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, Hello, I'm enjoying your podcasts and learning a lot. There are more that I need to listen to, so if this question has been addressed, I apologize. Which is the correct way to pass by other people sitting in your row when attending sporting events, school events, the theater movies, the opera, and so on? Should I be facing my seatmates or should I be facing away giving them my rear view? Which is the lesser of the two evils? From personal experience, the person sitting at the end has gotten up to let me in if I was sitting right next to him, depending on the event. Thank you for your advice. Talana. Talana, this is this is such a great question and we I, we have addressed it but we love addressing this question. It's Dan, time to bring it back around. I'm like I like I just want to just sit back off the mic and let you go. <laughs> like our performance guy, like tell us. This is such a great. This is this is just what I love listening to you talk about this piece of etiquette. Go for it, cuz. Well, I love performance etiquette in general and I love yeah. anything that makes people more comfortable going out and seeing theater, seeing dance, seeing the opera. I think it's oftentimes a a hurdle for people, just the experience itself. So the more familiar and comfortable it is, the more we can all enjoy that experience together. I got the hard answer to this from our aunt Peggy. We inherited this answer from the fourth generation. And Peggy always said that you wanted to face the performers on the stage, that you kept your attention and your focus towards the event that you're attending. And you might say to yourself, oh, but then 
the people who are in the row of seats behind you get the rear view. The reality is that when you're walking by someone waist level to them sitting down, both ways could be a little awkward in its their own way. And just having that orientation to the stage and the performers and that that's what you're going to take your cue and your direction from was so logical to me. It made so much sense to me. I never forgot it. And I love to pass that on to other people. Peggy would then add some practical reasons why that was a good way to orient yourself you don't want to hold on to the backs of the chairs of the people sitting in the row in front of you. But mm -hmm. if you did lose your balance or trip or stumble or need to hold something to get by, it does put you facing the seat backs of the row in front of you where it's easier to put your hand on something or get a hold of something that's not another person as you're making that, that passage. Maybe it's one or two seats. Maybe it's four, five, six, or seven if you're um, coming or going from a center seat. The other piece of advice that you can't skip over when you're giving this advice is that have that very muted, pardon me or excuse me, ready. Because oftentimes when you're shuffling by someone, the difference between how they perceive it as something considerate or something rude is the difference between just an acknowledgement that there's a bit of an imposition happening. It's unavoidable. You're going to do it, but you're acknowledging it and asking for their, their pardon or or if they'll excuse you. And that doesn't mean they have to do anything, but it's a nice it's a nice gesture to make. Dan, may I break in just to expand on that for one moment? Please. The acknowledgement of your action makes such a difference to how other people receive it. Exactly what you just said is so true in so many places with etiquette that if it it is unbelievable, it is transformative the power that vo vocalizing an acknowledgement about yourself out loud, being aware of your impact on others, what it does for other people in that moment, and then their impression of you is just totally, totally transformative. And I, I want to call out like, look, if you're looking for ways to actively change your relationships with people, acknowledge your impact on them. Okay. PSA aside. <laughs> I wish there was a way for me to continue to draw this answer <laughs> out, but it, it's it's an etiquette question where there is an answer. There's a way that we would suggest is uh, an appropriate way to do it and a good way to do it, an advisable way to do it. I also really like the little note about the person on the, the end seat offering to stand up and let someone in yes. or let someone pass. It's such a nice gesture. Um, if it is something that you can do, if you find yourself in that situation – it doesn't matter what your gender or what the gender of the person entering the aisle is. I think it's a really nice thing to to do or to yeah. offer to do for someone. Dan, final question before we wrap this one up. What should you do if you're the person in the seat? You're not on the end. Do you get up halfway? Is that more of a disturbance to the people behind you? Do you just lean back as far as you can? Do you kind of, you know, when people like, um, they call it like the Duchess slant when you, you like tur turn, turn your, your feet legs, to that diagonal. Turn so your there's legs a little on more that room. diagonal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like is, is that stuff we should be doing if we're seated and someone needs to get by? I think it's nice. I think if you can do it, like you say, without creating more of a disturbance for the people behind you, and sometimes by standing up a little bit, letting someone through, it happens quicker, it's faster, it's easier, okay. and and you're less obstructed. I think that's a question where the practical concerns really come into play. Mm -hmm. If you've got mm -hmm. a little bag down on the floor in front of you, pulling that back so they don't trip over yes. it, I think is another nice thing to do. And just Show some awareness, show some consideration. Talana, thank you so much for this question. We're so glad that you're enjoying the podcast and working your way through the archive. We hope you enjoy our answer. Another expression we need all the time is, excuse me. It lets other people know that you are thinking of them when you say, excuse me. Still, another way to smooth your meetings with other people is, may I? If you must interrupt, two words will show that you mean well. Simply... May I? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
Our next question is titled, Wardrobe Malfunction Matter. Good morning. My wife and I were dining out on Saturday at a mid-range restaurant in a hotel. The Tavern at Essex Inn. You may know it. We do know it. I, to I totally know the Tavern. We were midway through our meal when a couple were seated next to us. This seemed to be a mother-daughter pair, and hearing the one call the other mom confirmed that. The mother was middle-aged. I noticed something odd in a reflection in the window. The mother's shirt tag on the outside. A casual glance over confirmed that seeing the exposed seams, yes, the mother's shirt was on inside out. This caused a quiet conversation between my wife and I. Should we mention it? Maybe there were legitimate reasons for the shirt being inside out, a spill or stain. Would it cause more embarrassment to have a stranger tip her off than to have gone through the entire evening wearing a shirt inside out, and I'm guessing then realizing it like later when you get home? We immediately thought of your podcast and what would be the proper thing to do. In the end, we decided to say nothing, thinking that was the right thing to do or not do. What do you think would be best? A dinner dilemma in Vermont. That's delightful. <laughs> Isn't that delightful? Lizzie Post, one sentence answer. I think they made the right call. What do you think? Absolutely. I think they did the absolute right thing. <laughs> I think the whole idea of the right thing to do being not doing something is worth a postscript <laughs> at some point. Okay, good to know. <laughs> I, I've heard you talk about discretion, the ability to hear something and then not engage like you know it to let it go if yeah. it's personal information or something that someone would rather be private i've heard you talk about the ability to just self-edit and not say everything that occurs to you out of consideration for someone or not ask every question and a lesson hard learned by myself yes <laughs> so often it's true that the best thing for us to do is to not do something not put ourselves in the center of an equation or a situation and I think there's some awareness. I, I want to talk about the cost-benefit analysis and how you make right. that call. But I, I do think that there's something to be said for that, for the idea that, no, I don't need to be involved here. And, and that might be the most polite thing I can do. Yeah. So ways that we get there <laughs> are that you're noticing something that could potentially be embarrassing, but you're not very close to the person. You are effectively a stranger. It's a very good self-check in the very first moments is just, oh, wait. This person doesn't know me at all, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's a worthwhile step one in this evaluation process. Step number two, they're with someone else. My bet, especially now knowing that you've heard the one call the other mom, is that she's got someone there with her who's a buddy, you know? I, I mean, we don't know mm -hmm. their relationship, but she's got someone there with her. If this were someone in line headed into an event – and they mm -hmm. were on their own, mm -hmm. I might consider more more whether or not to tap that shoulder and say, you know, I'm sure you're probably already aware, but just in case you're not, your, your shirt does appear to be inside out. And I say appear because fashion has fooled me at times. The tag is a good indication at this part. But Dan yeah. even knows I received a sweater for Christmas. So I was like, I don't know which way is front or back. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you remember that sweater. And, yep. so, and so there is a little bit of a just like check yourself with that language that you use so that there's the possibility for you to be wrong. But again, a person alone headed into an event, maybe there's going to be a lot of photography happening at that event, and you, you wouldn't want that sweater or shirt or dress to be inside out. Very different set of people at a table, you know, they've, they, someone could tell her in the group if they noticed. <laughs> Leave it to them. I also think when I'm doing that cost-benefit analysis, I say to myself, and and I can hear this implicit in the scenario you described. What's the harm? Yeah. What, what's the what's the potential awkwardness or or discomfort that happens if if you don't say anything? It's not discovered, and this person finds out later. And for me, an inside-out shirt dining out with friends and family in Vermont is probably not going to be that yeah. awkward or embarrassing for someone, at least in my world. It, it, you can't know totally. everyone else's perspective or something, but but from the best of my knowledge, that's a survivable awkwardness or embarrassment. Yeah. And like you say, doesn't rise to the level of where I'm going to cross all these other boundaries. I don't know this person. I'm in a public place where they're not expecting to be approached and talked to about things like attire and dress and presentation. It's a broccoli rule analysis if you could help someone avoid awkwardness or embarrassment maybe you would but 
it doesn't quite rise to that broccoli rule level where I say to myself, I would want someone to tell me if I were in that situation. I love that filter to put it through. A dinner dilemma in Vermont, we're just delighted that you're dining out and enjoying restaurants that we think are excellent and that you also are listening to the show and looking at situations through the lens of awesome etiquette. It is so much fun to hear. Thank you for submitting the question and giving us all something to think about. Well, now, charm is the ability to make other people happy and comfortable with you. Now, that means that you must forget yourself and concentrate on putting the other person at ease. Right? Why, Mary, I never thought of it that way. Our next question is about a newly nervous neighbor. Ooh. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I live alone in a townhome. My newer neighbor and I at one point exchanged keys for emergencies. Well, she gave me a key, I gave her her own door code. It was originally so I could watch her cat for two weeks. She asked, I said okay, it was unpaid, and I was happy to. Once I asked her, when I was going to be gone the whole day, if she could let my dog out back around noon. She happily did. Great, right? We seem to be starting a good neighbor relationship. Okay, so the other evening, around 7 p.m., it's dark outside, my shades are closed. I was sitting in my living room reading. Suddenly I heard my lock disengage and someone walked in. My entry was dark and is behind a wall, so I did not know who. No one said, hi, it's me, or anything. I completely panicked. I said, hello? And it was the neighbor. I'll call her Joan. I couldn't help it. I then yelled, you scared me. Why didn't you knock? Joan just laughed it off, said it looked dark over here, so she thought I wasn't home. I'm always home on weeknights, and it's always dark, I guess since I put the blinds down. She said, I got your package by mistake. I thought I'd just put it inside. It honestly really scared me. My mind raced. Who could be coming in? Did some creep see me put in my code? Who? What? It took an hour for my heart rate to return to normal. Could you please discuss the proper use of keys between neighbors thing? I think she should have texted and or knocked. At the very least, a hello, it's just me, as she opened the door. Mm -hmm. But even then, I'd still have been scared to hear the lock quietly disengage with no warning. I think you only use a neighbor key with their specific direction on a specific day for a specific reason, and you still knock just in case. Also, I was not properly clothed for company. Had she knocked, I'd have thrown on a robe to answer. I hate that. Fine, she's also a woman. I was in a tank top and leggings. Nothing crazy, no big deal, I guess. But I felt mildly horrified at that feeling, too. I did delete her code. Any advice on this, I would love to hear. General neighbor rules? How to tell her I took out her code? Etc. <laughs> Signed, Nervous Neighbor. Oh my goodness, nervous neighbor. This is not a fun situation to be in. And I actually think you've answered a lot of your own questions within this. I agree that when neighbors share things like keys and codes, that it's important to make sure that everybody understands the boundaries with those keys and codes, that they're not just free license to go in anytime you want. It's clear to me that the neighbor was trying to do something nice. I got your package. I figured I'd drop it off. I have a, a code to your apartment. So rather than leaving it outside or townhouse, sorry, rather than leaving it on the doorstep outside, I'll, I'll put it inside nice and safe. Like there is a version of this where that was just a really innocent, nice favor that's being done. But there's a couple things that I do think were kind of missteps by the by the neighbor in this. And I think that if you were going to do this, I do think maybe texting first the first time, you know, uh, that, that a package gets misdelivered would be nice for setting up an expectation for how misdelivered mail and packages could be handled. You know, some people might just say, oh, just leave it outside. Someone else might say, you know, you've got that code. Feel free to just drop off anything that, that comes in, you know, but there's a conversation and there was no conversation here. So there's no precedent for what to do. You're just going on people's basic instincts and those can be really different. And they clearly were right here. But Dan, I'm thinking that in general, a lot of the things that are listed by Nervous Neighbor are right. You want to have boundaries. You want to know that things are expected. If you don't know, don't assume. So if you don't know whether or not it's okay to use that key when you know your neighbor's gone, but you aren't the one 
you know, uh, watching the house or something like that, then you should check in with them first. You should knock first. You should start implementing those you're not expecting me tactics that we use. Absolutely. To me, the the biggest mistake here is entering the house quietly. I'm trying to imagine a situation where I would enter someone else's home unannounced, unexpected, and not make an effort to knock on the door, say hello from outside, and then yeah. repeat that process through the entry. And I yeah. think that that if the neighbor had done all of those things well, all the other missteps that led up to it might have balanced out. Yeah. Yeah. In in, in ways that made this a much less frightening situation and much more of a, an oops kind of situation. I'm hearing from Nervous Neighbor just that this was a really scary moment. Yeah. That, that there was someone creeping into the house mm -hmm. and they didn't know who it was, that they're shouting out, that they find out it's fine, it's all okay, but that, that you spend an hour in that state of, of – a fight or flight, hyper accelerated yeah. biological response. That's a lot to put someone through. And it could be avoided by really announcing yourself as you enter. And, and particularly if you're unexpected, I want to put myself in that other person's shoes. They think no one's home. They think they're, you're doing you a favor by putting that package inside yeah. where it's not going to get grabbed by someone. But it's it, the the end result is serious enough that I really want to find the moment where I think it's the biggest infraction. And to me, it's that. Yeah. And and I just can't imagine myself doing the same thing without a slightly different set of behavior layered on top of it that I think yeah. would have prevented the worst of this outcome. Here's the part of it where I might change tact a little bit from from what Nervous Neighbor chose to do. And I think it's a personal preference thing when it comes to do I tell the person that I've changed their code and I, I don't want them to have access anymore? It's a bigger conversation for sure. And I think some, some folks will want to change that code. Other people will just want to have a conversation to set the expectations up. But I do think that regardless, that it's okay for you to ex express that that particular moment was frightening for you to a degree that it made you realize you you don't feel comfortable having someone have a code to your home. And, and I don't know how that impacts maybe the pet care or the things that were going on, you know, and whether that means no longer can those things happen or if it's just, no, each time we decide to let those things happen, I'll reset a new code for you and you can use that code to come into my house. You know what I mean? That I would want to try to not totally burn the bridge. And I don't think that Nervous Neighbor wants to burn this bridge. But in terms of do you talk to them about it, I, I do think you would want to let them know rather than just, I mean, clearly this person felt comfortable using the code on their own for what they thought seemed like an, an innocuous favor, you know what I mean? But it, it I, I think it would be best to let them know you've made that change. Be honest about that. I think you could. I leaned the other way with it. Interesting. I, and and I, I, having heard myself say this was a frightening experience, I, I can absolutely have room in my world for wanting to have a conversation with that neighbor and let them know just how scary that was for you and, and that you want to be sure they know it so that in the future, something like that doesn't happen again. And if they knew the impact that it had, you're sure that it wouldn't. And I think yeah. you could have that conversation well, and in a way that didn't necessarily mean the end of a growing positive neighbor relationship. I, I love this idea of technology freeing us up where you can <laughs> hand out independent codes where you yeah. don't need to go get that key back. You don't have to have that conversation if you don't want to. You can just deactivate that code and it's never going to happen again. And the moment where that person Tries tells it. you, oh, I, I was hoping to do X, Y, or Z, you can say, oh, yeah, no, those codes, I changed them, but the next time we I'll need, give you a we new need one. to be sure that you can get in, I'll generate a code for you. And there you go. <laughs> the other thought that I had was mm. that you could offer to return the key that you're holding, that's yes, this other person's like to, key. To give that same courtesy back the other way, like and not that just might, hold oh, their key. Yeah. Open and it might provide a moment to open up a discussion about how much access or how you you could get yeah. a feel for how far into that conversation you wanted to go in a natural way by returning that key or offering to return that key. It might be a way to open the door yeah. to a, another 
kind of conversation about when and how you gain access to each other's homes. Nervous neighbors, there's no one complete straight line with this particular issue between neighbors because some neighbors are going to be close enough that it'll be fine and other neighbors this will they will never get to the point of exchanging keys or codes. However, I do think that one of the best through lines we can take from this entire example is the one that Dan had settled on, which is that announcing yourself whether you have that key or not is probably worth it. That just giving a hello can make a really big difference as you're coming in a door. Nervous neighbor, we're so sorry that this happened to you. It sounds truly frightening, but we're also really glad that you shared it with us. And we hope that our answer helps someone else not be put in this situation in the future. There's no getting around it. What we did was wrong, and we all know it now. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesome etiquette at emilypost.com. Or you can leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. On Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. And you can find us on LinkedIn. Over there, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag awesome etiquette with your social media posts so that we know you want your question on the show. If you enjoy awesome etiquette, consider becoming a paid subscriber to our Substack by going to emilypost.substack.com. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content, including our discussion threads and community forum. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help keep awesome etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already paid subscribers, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we have feedback in a text about opening mailed gifts before Christmas. Regarding the question in episode number 439 about whether or not to open Christmas presents that had gotten wet during delivery... I would hesitate to call the sender to let them know that the presents had gotten wet and were possibly damaged. If I were the sender, I might feel compelled to replace the presents if they had indeed been ruined. In addition, if the gifts were something that could not be replaced, the sender might be truly distressed. Depending upon whether or not the sender would ever visit and or see the gifts on display or in use, it might be best to go ahead and open the gifts and then thank the giver, regardless of damage, as if the gifts had been opened on Christmas. Then, if the gifts had indeed survived the soaking, all is well. Social white lies, I realize. P.S. I am absolutely shameless and immediately open any Christmas gift sent to me as soon as it arrives. (laughs) I like that that admission. I don't know. Is it a social white lie if you don't mention it? I feel like that's more just omission, not necessarily lie. But I, I wouldn't even call it a lie of omission. Like I'm, I think I'm with you, Lizzie Post. I think, that's, I think that's not lying. terrible. Yeah. yeah. Like I, but I, I, I still would probably do what we suggested in that episode, which is I would probably let them know. But I, let's throw that caveat in. Depending on the situation, you know what I mean. If it's my mother, I'm not going to feel too bad about letting her know how it arrived or what happened, and I'm not as concerned about like compelling someone to. To give to replace the gift, like I'm not worried about that because that's in their zone. If it arrived, the, the disappointed, I have more of a concern with. I wouldn't want to disappoint somebody, you know. Like I don't know. I, I I appreciated hearing this feedback. It definitely gave me thought on the issue. <laughs> me too. And I guess as I think more about it, I say to myself, as someone who was giving a gift, there are reasons that I would want to know. Yeah. If something arrived damaged and. It would a little bit depend on the kind of damage. If I'd ordered something that was unique and special and it wasn't packed appropriately and it didn't right. make it there and it was damaged, there's a very good chance that there's someone else who's responsible and accountable. And by communicating that, you can actually find where that accountability lies and get it replaced or get it, get it fixed dealt with. or yeah. get yeah. it dealt with in some way. And there's another kind of damage that might happen where it's not necessarily the fault of the person who's originating the shipping, but it's just the way packages get delivered. It got left too far to the right and it was under a gutter and it got Oh soaked. gosh, yes. And totally. it's, it's not something that the, the shipping company could do any better or worse. It really was just a... Uh, Someone placed an, it in the wrong spot and the rain hit. 
an accident of habit, a, a replacement delivery person that day, something that, that was less something that's fixable and more something that just kind of happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so a little bit, it would have been on the nature of the damage, the nature of the gift, the relationship with the person. But I can certainly see a lot of instances where I would say to myself, you know, sometimes things happen along the way and there's no point in putting those problems back in anyone else's lap. I'm okay with things where they are. I'm okay with people feeling yeah. good about having given those gifts. I feel good about receiving them. Things happen. I can let it go. I don't need to tell anyone. To me, there's a, a lot of room for that in this particular kind of situation. Anonymous, thank you so much for this feedback. It certainly gave both of us something to think about. Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette, and today we're going to hear the second part of Lizzie's interview with Emily Ledow, author of Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. We hope you enjoy the second part of this conversation. There is a wonderful chapter in your book titled Disability Etiquette 101, obviously really stood out to us at Emily Post, and I was hoping that we might do a little bit of a lightning round together where we can go through some of the different points from that chapter, because I did think they were so awesome. And a couple of them were real revelations for me. Again, based on that 80s and 90s upbringing of mine, not serving me so well in the <laughs> 2020s. So the first one was asking to share a suggestion before sharing it. And I loved this one because it's something, it's advice that we already teach here at Emily Post. And for us, it came out of a lot of both mental and physical health experiences. So like, you know, you you broke your, you had that ACL, you know, surgery that everybody seems to have, or something like if you had a particular issue with your mental health, the type of therapy you might choose to seek out. It's very easy for people to, in an, in an effort of wanting to help, to over-suggest and to forget this first initial step. T talk to me about how that works in the world of disability. I think to put it quite simply, it's about not making assumptions about another person because yeah. everyone is their own person. And just because something worked well for you doesn't mean that it's going to work well for someone else. And they may also not be in the place to receive that advice right now. So simply by saying, hey, I really do want to help, but I also respect that you may not want that kind of assistance or suggestion right now, it makes a world of difference because I don't need somebody telling me, go try yoga. That's not the headspace yeah. of Acupuncture. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we hear this a lot in the, in our, in, like with our, uh, our, our, our listeners who are dealing with infertility. It's like immediately people go down the holistic suggestions. They go down the, get in and do your IVF ASAP. You can get grants from these people for it. Like, I mean, just, it's like the over suggestion for coming from a good place, but not being filtered through that lens of consideration, respect and, and honesty that at least we use here at Emily Post. 100%. <laughs> so there you go, audience, some sample language. You could say something like, would you like to hear something that worked for me or my friend? No. Okay. No worries. Yes. Okay, great. This is what worked. Let me send you the link. You know, I mean, it's, it's as simple as that, but, um, goes right back to that good old Emily Post advice of stop and think first. <laughs> Next. Um, and this one I was really excited about because I believe this is the first time we've included it in our 20, in our big book of etiquette. And that is the idea about asking, when you're planning any kind of event or gathering in your home or even at a restaurant or a venue, asking your guests about accommodations that could be made. Our audience is really used to hearing us suggest that you ask about allergies, food restrictions, things like that. But accommodations make such a big difference. And, and you point out in the book that you might be asking someone who you don't think has an accommodation, but actually they could really appreciate it. I think it's so crucial to put it out there to the group if you know somebody has a disability, if you're really close with that person or have the type of relationship where you can just approach them, 
then go for it. But if you are hosting an entire group, there's really no need to single anybody out. You can simply put it out there in the invitation and say, hey, how can I make this accessible for you? What can I do to make sure that you feel welcome and included in my space? And that has made a world of difference. When somebody says to me, I want you to feel like you belong here and I'm going to do what I can to make that happen. Whether it is letting me know the layout of their home so that I know how I can Mm -hmm. navigate, whether it's talking to me about how I prefer to sit at a table, would I like a chair pulled out or would I like to get out of my wheelchair and sit in a chair? Small Mm -hmm. gestures, but it really makes a world of difference. Absolutely. One one that I appreciated that we heard someone write in about was that the shoes that they wear really help stabilize them to keep them balanced. So being the moment of entry when they're asked to take their shoes off becomes a very awkward moment for them. And I'm loving the idea that that's even a conversation that could happen before you even arrive so that you're aware, like, I can leave my shoes on. I know George is going to leave his shoes on because they help him with stability, that kind of a thing. Or you just make it a shoes on event so you don't have to worry about George being singled out or anything either. Right. And then you avoid the awkwardness of the moment that someone arrives and you realize, oh, no, I don't know how to handle this situation because you already had the conversation. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Also, it's such a good like advocation for RSVPs, which we have seen dying and we know hosts need them. So it's one more reason to RSVP or to ask for that RSVP. The next one in the list that we were going to talk about was keeping your hands to yourself. And this is one I've, I've actually feel like my eighties and nineties did, did me well. They taught me that uh, mobility devices and communication aids are a part of someone's being, their body, their functionality, and that you don't touch them without asking. You don't touch them just ever. And that that is a, 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 don't go there kind of a one. I really appreciated some of the nuance that you brought to this topic. Tell us a little bit about it from your perspective. The simplest way for me to explain this one is to say, if you would not touch someone who does not have an apparent disability or is not using a mobility device, then don't touch someone who is using a mobility device. It's pretty easy, right? <laughs> totally. It's fascinating to me how often strangers will come up and lean on my wheelchair. Would you go up to a stranger and lean on a stranger's shoulder? I would hope not. If you do, maybe we need to have a different etiquette conversation. Yeah, I know. That's like, we send you a book for free. <laughs> so what it really comes down to for me is respecting someone's personal space, but also understanding that that looks different for different people. There are moments where I am very grateful when someone does get a little bit closer to me or they might bend down a little bit so that I'm not craning my neck to look at them. But then there are also moments where I feel like that is really patronizing. So sometimes it's just about taking a moment to think about the context of the situation. I appreciate it too. You have a good anecdote in this section of the book about how sometimes that that bending down or crouching down or kneeling down, it's, it's such a relief. And other times it's just painful to watch the other person do it. And this lady in this little black cocktail yes. dress was like wobbling and falling over as she's crouched in heels. Like it wasn't working. And you're like, just going, you don't have to try this hard. If you are like- in stilettos, <laughs> I already feel bad for you and your feet. So just stay standing up. It's really fine. I forgive you already. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is one that I feel like most of our audience is is pretty aware of, but it's the idea that service dogs are really concentrating on a job when they are working. And when you see a service dog who is working, that it's, it's really important that you give that dog space, that you don't try to engage the dog especially if you have no reason to be engaging the owner of the dog or the, the person who is with the dog, I should say. But I was really interested to find that you had, there was advice in the book about how you could engage if you wanted to, uh, that it was about asking first. Yes. 
ask first is my go-to advice if I had to give one takeaway. Always. <laughs> Isn't it like, don't you find that as an advice giver? Like, ask first is like your, I just, it's my favorite. It is a no-fail piece of advice. and Works every yep. time. <laughs> but I also think the really important thing here is that when it comes to service dogs, it's not even just a matter of etiquette. It's a matter of safety because that service yeah. dog is guiding someone and making sure that they are not going to crash into something or unsafely cross the street if they're a service dog for someone who has a vision disability or if they are a service dog for someone who has a mobility disability they need to be on alert to make sure that if that person drops something or falls or something happens they can respond if that service dog is monitoring for seizures or blood sugar if they're distracted they may not alert their owner or their handler that something is about to happen. And so this is not just about what's the right thing to do. It could be a matter of life and death. So this is a really, really important one. I know this can be really hard for kids. So again, parents out there, just really try to remind your kiddos that uh, service animals, when we see either that special harness or the, um, I don't want to call it a flag, but the pinny that sometimes a service animal will wear that says, I'm working, you know, not a pet is sometimes also what I see written on it, that it's very important that you are minding your children in that moment, that it's really not okay for them to be allowed to explore and engage on their own in this particular moment. Yes, but if you do happen to have a moment where somebody is sitting or not actively engaging with their service animal okay. and you so like maybe in a waiting area right, or something and you like just that really have the urge to say hello <laughs> you can say is it okay if i say hi to your service dog i know they're working right now but i'd love to say hello oh i love that sample language i love the addition of i know they're working right now that is major consideration respect right yeah. there i love it and if somebody <laughs> says you're right, they're working right now. I would prefer that you not say hello than say, okay, no problem. Just wanted you to know that I think you have a beautiful dog. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. The next one is one that I really appreciated learning because I could see how some people would think or how previous advice might have been to do these two things. And that's with someone who has um, uh, any any trouble hearing that you would flick lights or tap their shoulder as a first choice. And I love that you clarified, no, 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 that's like a last resort. <laughs> What's the best way we can get in touch with someone if we're not sure that they can hear us or if we know they can't hear us? It's so important not to startle a person because think about it, whether you have some kind of hearing disability or not, it's really uncomfortable when somebody sneaks up behind you. And Oh, yeah, I jump and scream. I mean, it's yeah, awkward. Yeah, it's horrifying. <laughs> so if somebody can just get into a person's field of vision or come near you and approach in such a way that they're not sneaking up on you and then banging you on the shoulder, very simple approach to getting attention. Just be gentle and be straightforward and approach. You don't need to sneak up. And I'm guessing a little slower too. We don't have to be like quick in our actions, right? right? Yeah. And yes, speaking up probably doesn't do a whole lot of good in that situation. Right. right? Exactly. (laughs) Remember that shouting very loudly is probably not going to help. So instead, just do what you can to get in a person's field of vision. Finally, one of the ones that I really appreciated, and we had this in our in our book as well, was allowing people time to respond. And this is one that I think it doesn't matter where your abilities lie. This is a good one because right now I just took a minute. I had to think about what I was going to say next. You know, there's a pause in that conversation that we could easily want to fill And I think it's very tempting to want to guess at words and finish sentences if someone is taking a little while, if they're stuttering. We see this also when it comes to folks who are speaking different languages or who aren't native speakers to a language, that oftentimes there's a predictive nature that comes out in us and we think it's helpful, but it's really a lot of distraction for the person who is trying to communicate. It's cute when you finish each other's sentences in a rom-com, but it's not actually cute in real life. 
like so many things in rom-coms not good for real life i love that emily and to be honest I am someone who is very enthusiastic in conversations, and so I have to be very mindful not to immediately start talking when there is a pause in conversation, because that can mean the other person is processing, they're trying to figure out how to articulate what they want to say, maybe they just need a moment to catch their breath. So get comfortable in those pauses. They're only awkward pauses if you make them awkward pauses. I love that so much. We need to put that on a quote somewhere. <laughs> They're only awkward pauses if you make them awkward. <laughs> I love that. Audience, please adopt and spread on menus nationwide. Not menus, obviously. <laughs> I love. I really love that one, Emily. I really love that. Um, this has been so informative and helpful, as is your incredible book, I'd love to close the interview by asking you, what's just one thing you'd like people to know to improve their interactions with others across the board? Big blanket, giant etiquette statement. If you could wave a magic wand, what's the one thing you wish you could get into people's heads? Just act like yourself. Oh, I love that. Disabled people are people. We are all people and we are all interacting with other human beings. So there is no reason for us to change who we are as a person or to expect that Mm -hmm. someone else is going to change who they are as a person. Just be yourself. I think that was very wisely said. Be yourself. I love it. Emily, thank you so much for taking some time today to chat with us and the Awesome Etiquette audience. Where can our audience members find you and your wonderful book? Well, first of all, this was so wonderful. I had the best time. Oh, Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. And as for where people can find me, I love to continue these conversations. So please feel free to look for me online. I'm at emilyladau.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-L-A-D-A-U.com. And you can find all of my social media on there. But my greatest hope is that you will take this as just one point in a broader journey of learning about disability and etiquette. I love it. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. I want to add my thanks to Emily Liddell for joining us for this postscript discussion. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have a salute from sustaining member David. Dear Lizzie, Dan, and team, thanks as always for your wonderful civil podcast. It occurred to me the other day that you may be the only podcast, certainly any on as long as awesome etiquette, to air fresh material every single week. Remarkable. Haha, thank you. <laughs> and I just want to acknowledge Patriots Unfiltered, which is the longest running original yes. podcast radio show on yes. the internet. They started in the late 90s and have not <laughs> missed a week with original content since then. I'm so impressed. Um, <laughs> but thank you for including us in uh, a, 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 an august list of people that have done this for a long time. We appreciate it. Spring training has begun. Let's go Mets. And it brings to mind an etiquette salute, which predates the show. Some college friends and I took a drive to Cooperstown, New York, to see my hero, Willie Mays, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. As we pulled into town, steam began pouring out from under the hood of my friend's car. We rolled it into a nearby service station, and the person told us he'd get it fixed, and we should go and enjoy the day. By the way, this was 1979, and we were very broke college students. It was a great ceremony, a huge thrill to see such greatness so close by. And, with trepidation, we walked back to the service station. This was quite a job, he said. You only needed a radiator hose, but it was under the radiator, so we took it all out and put it all back in. Then he said, you kids go on and get home. My friend asked how much we owed. He told us again just to head home safely. There was no charge. All we had was a full can of Juicy Juice left (laughs) from the food we brought and gave it to him. It's 44 years later, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I think of him now and again as I'm fortunate enough to be able to pay it forward many times. And I really hope he knows how much his kindness and his example meant to four young people. Batter up, David. 
David. That's a great salute. Thank you so much. And it's also inspirational because it is true. Salutes do not have to be in the moment, dear friends, listeners. You can tell us salutes from moments that were really meaningful for you in your lives from any decade. David, thank you so much for this. And I'm going to take the challenge, David. This batter is ready. Thank you so much for the salute. And thank you all for listening today. And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Substack. Please help us grow this awesome etiquette community and connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us your next question, piece of feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a community member with a paid subscription to our Substack. This is one of the best ways to support the show. You can get a community membership by visiting us at emilypost.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as it does help our show ranking, which will help more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget.